Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning, we're returning to reading the Gospel of Mark together after some time off uh, for Advent and for Christmas Tide. Uh, <clears throat> we've been looking at Mark's Gospel together on and off uh, since the fall of 2016, and uh, we will finish it at the end of this month. So we are uh, coming back to Mark this morning at a uh, difficult point in the story, a hard place in the story. Uh, Reading it feels a little bit like being thrown uh, into cold water. Jesus has just been condemned for heresy by the religious authorities, and he is about to be led to the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. So I'm going to read from Mark 15 for us, and you can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship, or you can follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Mark 15, verses 1 through 20. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, just a few minutes ago, we all sang together... Um, that the love of Jesus is underneath us and around us, that the current of his love is everywhere in our lives. And so we ask now that those, those words that we sang, some of us meant it, some of us didn't, some of us didn't even think about it. 
But we ask now that those words we would perceive and know and feel and be convinced is true. That you would use this word that we've read together and heard together that we're going to think about and talk about together to show us the love of Jesus that is all around us and to change us by it. Meet us wherever we find ourselves this morning from whatever places we have come from. Meet us where we are and change us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for most of uh, my life as a pastor, I've had this uh, little habit, this little custom of telling people, if I mention them in a sermon, uh, that they owe me a dollar. Um, Now, when I say it, I don't often say it, um, I usually get really weird stares in return. I'm pretty sure that I've never collected any money on this, maybe a dollar or two. Um, But it's really just this goofy in-joke that makes no sense to anybody but a small handful of people. And I was thinking about that custom this week, and it occurred to me that that, uh, Jim Adamson started that many, many years ago. Jim's not here this morning, but obviously he owes me a dollar now. Um, But honestly, who who doesn't like getting name-checked? Who doesn't like to see their name in print? Who, who doesn't like to, see, to hear their name mentioned in public? I think that everybody does. I uh, have been mentioned in the liner notes uh, of an album exactly two times. Once uh, very recently by one of our own bands here at Covenant, and I don't mind telling you, felt pretty great. And I bring this up because one of the people in the story that we just read together is name-checked every single day by millions and millions of Christians the world over. And he has been for almost 1,600 years. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, who, who made his strange and sad intrusion into one of the most ancient and revered and repeated creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed. Billions and billions and billions of Christians have professed together that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And you have to wonder if, if he could have handpicked his legacy if that would have been the thing that he wanted to be known for. I very much doubt it, (laughs) given how he responds to Jesus. But in the end, he makes the cynical and utilitarian choice for this short-term payoff. That is not the name check that anyone would ever want. But in that way, if we're being honest... Pilate can be a guide to us to find our own footing in this story. What drives our choices? What makes us feel threatened and uncomfortable? What gives us hope? So Mark tells us that the sun had begun to rise on Jesus' last day and that the chief priests and that the elders and the scribes, that whole council called the Sanhedrin, are meeting together for a consultation. This is not another trial. That trial already happened. It happened under the cover of night 
and Jesus was condemned as a heretic, condemned for blasphemy. He was condemned to death. This meeting is not about that. They're not retrying Jesus. This meeting is about their next move. And honestly, it is one of the cruelest, cruelest parts of this story. Because the truth of the matter is, if they had wanted to, they could have killed Jesus themselves. It wouldn't have been regarded probably anything like a vigilante action. The Romans wouldn't have cared if they had killed Jesus, even if the Romans had ever heard about it. But they don't want to kill Jesus themselves. Even though the fickle crowds in Jerusalem are beginning to turn, and maybe they sensed that that was happening in the crowd, we have to remember that they did all that they did that night because they were afraid of the people. They did it at night from from the arrest through the trial right into that morning. They did it under the cover of night because they feared the people. That whole stealth action had been driven by fear from beginning to end. And now this fear will drive them even further. It will drive them into considering the long game. So now, now that the morning has come, it's important to them that this be as public as possible and that it be as shameful as possible. They, they want a spectacle now. If not for Jesus, then for his followers. They want to squash this movement flat. They don't want any of Jesus' followers to imagine that they could continue his cause after he was gone without repercussions. They wanted people to flinch. They wanted people to shudder when they heard the name Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't want anyone to take up his torch. So if you wanted shame, if you wanted spectacle, if you wanted the threat of swift, powerful, violent consequences, then you had to defer to Roman power. Lucky for them, Pilate is in town. Pilate was the Roman prefect, the governor of the Judean province, and he represented all the power and all the authority of Rome in that place. His word was law, and it carried the weight of Caesar himself. Now, most of the time, he lived about 70 miles north of Jerusalem in a town called Caesarea, but during the festivals, during the feasts like Passover, he and his battalion would come down and reside in Jerusalem because people could get out of control and it was just good for him to be there. And so he lived in Jerusalem, probably in the palace of the puppet king Herod on the western edge of the city. Now the problem for the Sanhedrin, of course, is that Pilate wouldn't care at all about a heresy charge. (laughs) The Romans were happy to let the residents of their territories follow whatever religion they wanted to follow. And Pilate wouldn't have raised a finger over religious infighting over so-called messiahs. So the Sanhedrin had to stage it. They had to frame it. They had to frame things up in the language that would get Pilate's attention. So they bind Jesus and they deliver him over to Pilate and they say, Pilate, this man, this man says he's the king. He says he's the real king of the Jews. And sir, we don't need to tell you, that's 
an affront to your authority. That's an affront to our rightful monarch, Herod. Well, this gets Pilate's attention. And so the trial begins, and Pilate cuts directly to the chase, and he asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies, You have said so. Now that is a pretty ambiguous response, but the literal rendering of the words that that Mark uses to record Jesus' words are even more ambiguous. Literally what Jesus says is, you say. It just has easily been translated, that's what you say. So there's no way around it. Jesus is being vague here. He is being ambiguous here, and he is doing it on purpose. And we have to wonder, why? Pilate knows that Jesus is doing this. So do the chief priests. And so they start hurling more and more accusations out of desperation. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what the accusations were, but we know from the other gospel writers that some of them were distortions of Jesus' teaching. Others of them were outright lies about Jesus and his teaching. They hurl them, but Pilate seems to care very little for the chief priests and for their accusations. They seem almost to be like gnats that he's trying to get away from his face because by now he has become galvanized at who Jesus is. Pilate asks Jesus, don't you have anything to say? Do you hear all of the accusations that they're hurling against you? It's so many. But Jesus, Mark tells us, made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. It's clear to Pilate, and it's clear to us. Jesus has no desire, he has no need to defend himself. Jesus has no impulse at all for revenge. He doesn't want to wiggle out of this situation. He doesn't somehow want to work it to his advantage. Jesus has absolutely no desire, no impulse to turn the tables on the Sanhedrin. He doesn't want to suck up to Pilate. If anyone could have rightly gotten out of this situation, it's Jesus. And when we read this, when we hear this, when we think of this moment, in particular with Pilate, we wonder to ourselves, why don't you say anything? But Jesus will have none of it. Now this, this passage is filled, filled with ironies. I think this part of Mark's story, this, the first part of, of Mark 15, is concentrated with more irony than any other place in his story. We would never have the time to turn them all over, but I think they all flow out of this one. The powerful ones who were there that day are saying that Jesus is pretending to be the king. And they hope he'll die for it. But we know. We know that he is the king. We know because Mark told us that's what this story is about. We know because we've heard him teach. We've seen him heal. We've watched him in love with the people. We've heard of this kingdom that he has come to proclaim. So we know that he's the king. And every time he is hit and mocked, every time he is saluted 
with this as a way of making more fun of him, of heaping more shame on him. We know that it is in fact true. He is the king. And I think this exposes something powerful about Jesus. Jesus' expression of meekness, his expression of quietness, his expression even of deference in this moment, these things do not happen in spite of his kingship. These expressions are the proof of his kingship. Jesus is silent, but he is screaming. This is what the true king looks like. It is particularly pointed, I think, to consider this in light of our national life these last few days. We've all heard the reports of our president trying to force his point by dismissing peoples with a shameful prejudice. And if we're being honest, we will acknowledge that it is not just him. It is many, many leaders from all over the place, right and left, in our common life who do this. People get carved up into the most useful categories for whoever has the microphone in that moment. And then blame is assigned, and then blame gets counter-assigned, and muscles are flexed in a race to be the toughest, to be the rightest, to be the smartest about whatever it is that's being talked about. And this perverts and warps our idea of strength. And this perverts and it warps our idea of what it means to, to lead and to be led. And the practice of love is absent. The practice of real flesh and blood love is absent. And this stands in the starkest of contrasts to the Jesus who is standing up under Pilate's trial. Resolute, committed, settled strength that is driven by love. Resolute and committed and settled. And you know one of the best things about this for Christian people, one of the most hopeful things that I can ever imagine out of this for Christian people is that we don't have to pine to have a leader like Jesus because he is our leader. He is our king. He is the head of the body, the church. And in the way that our faith works, in this mystery of how our faith works, you know what that means? It means not only are we led by Jesus, it means that those who are united to him by faith are being slowly changed to live like Jesus. And if we are called to lead like he led. Resolute, committed, settled, strength, driven by love. If we need to know why, why are you quiet, Jesus? <laughs> why won't you say anything? Then we don't need to go any further than the Old Testament lesson that we heard this morning. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Jesus is that servant, the one who bore the sins of many, the one who makes intercession for people like us. In other words, Jesus is love doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's who he is, love doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. I don't know how that could be more clear than in what happens next. Pilate had a custom during the Passover feast of throwing the people a bone. He would give them any prisoner they wanted. I guess it was good public relations. And Mark tells us that one of the guys who was up the river at that particular moment in time was an insurrectionist murderer named Barabbas. Now, this is a big deal. Barabbas is in a Roman prison because he had taken part in one of the countless insurrections against Roman overlordship and Roman power. He had killed someone in that insurrection, and it doesn't take too much imagination to figure that it must have been a Roman, maybe a Roman soldier. This guy is headed to crucifixion for sure. Meanwhile, Pilate has figured out that he's being played. He's realized that envy is driving Jesus' accusers, and he's realized that the accusations against him don't hold any water. And he realizes they're playing me. (laughs) They are working me to get what they want. And this makes him want to get one over on them. It's all about power for him. And so he asked that large crowd that's gathered at the palace if they would like him to release for them the king of the Jews. I think maybe that he thinks that Jesus' innocence, that the farce of this whole thing is is as obvious to the crowd as it is to him. But what they don't know is that he has been outmaneuvered, that the chief priests have anticipated this. They have stirred up the crowd to demand that Barabbas be released. And so Pilate responds by asking, what is he supposed to do with this king of the Jews then? He can't resist calling Jesus that one more time. Well, they say crucify him. And he says, why? What evil has he done? And they won't even answer his question. They just yell, crucify him again. So Pilate knows that he's been played, and he also knows that Jesus is innocent. He is caught between these two things, but he realizes he's got one more angle left to play. He can satisfy the crowd. Who knows when he'll need them? on his side in the future. So all is not lost. And he makes that cynical and utilitarian choice for a payoff that he can keep in his back pocket for later. Jesus may be an innocent man, but he is definitely a useful pawn. Pilate sets Barabbas free. And then he has Jesus scourged and delivers him to be crucified. And with that, Pilate steps into infamy and into our creed. So we've got to ask, what hope is there for a guy like Pilate? 
What hope does a guy like Pilate have in this world? Well, church, it is the same hope that exists for people like you and me. I know for us, we, we don't step into infamy for it, but my guess is that there is not one of us here this morning who has not at some point in their life made the same kind of calculation as Pilate. I know this isn't right, but it works for me now. I'm not proud of this. I'm not proud of this, but it will help me, and I'm pretty sure I'll be able to move on from it. I can't let this one person be more important than all of the stuff that is even more important to me. I can't let this one person get in the way of my power and my happiness. I can't. And we do the calculation and we do that thing. And it's the kind of stuff that keeps us up at night. What's our hope? What's hope for people like us? Well, our hope is love doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Our hope is pinned to that innocent man who is being led off to die while the murderer goes free. Our hope is what old Peter said it was. Remember Peter? Peter now somewhere off in Jerusalem, cowering in fear, having denied Jesus three times. Our hope is what Peter said it was. Jesus, who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Love doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Church, this is the good news, and we can never, ever, ever hear it enough. Believe it again, church, or believe it for the first time. So Mark downplays the physicality of what happens next. I think probably because he assumes that his readers are familiar with it. All of the gospel writers do. None of them, none of them sensationalize the physical suffering of Jesus. But we are largely removed from cultures that understand this kind of violence. We are largely, many of us, removed from cultures that understand this kind of physical suffering. And so it's important for us to know that the suffering that Jesus endured over the next few hours of his life was brutal and ugly and repellent and inhumane. That is what love absorbed for people like us. And it is good. It is good for us to know that it mattered and that it continues to matter. It continues to matter deeply for Christians all around the world who have, like Jesus, known the pain of scourging or torture 
or physical violence or assault. Church, it matters. It matters right now, this morning, this Sunday. It matters to our sisters and brothers in China who are no doubt living in fear because their church was literally blown up by the government this last week. Church, it matters. It matters right now on this Sunday morning. Right now, it matters to our sisters and brothers in Selma who knew or who were victims of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in September of 1963. It matters to them. And it matters right now, this morning, in this moment, to our sisters and brothers in Egypt, 130 of whom were killed inside the walls of churches in 2017. It matters to them that their Jesus, our Jesus, received the scourge. He knows intimacy with their pain. He has solidarity with their suffering, and it brings them comfort. And the soldiers put a robe on Jesus, and they twist this perverse crown of thorns, and they put it on his head. They strike him. They spit on him. They kneel down in mock homage to him. They salute him as the king. And they lead him off to crucify him. And church, here's what we need to remember. This, this is Jesus' triumphal procession. This is his coronation parade. These things happen to Jesus not despite of his kingship, but as the proof of his kingship, as the deep truth of his kingship. Because this is what love looks like, headed off to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Let me pray for us. Father, we admit that we hear these things and it is difficult for us to even begin to understand, to comprehend. And so, Father, we ask that you would use this story yet again, these words yet again, to sink into the deepest, deepest parts of who we are so that we would know and perceive and believe the love of Jesus that is coursing all around us, the love that does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Help us, Father, to cling to it for our good and for the good of this broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.